Thanks, Dave. Uh, I uh, we uh, I want to remind us if uh, if you're new here, if you just logged on today because you got like a Mailchimp letter or uh, you went to our website and clicked the banner, that's great. But if you want to be on our database, it's much it's much easier for us to have you in the database so that we can send you. Uh, emails and texts directly from the church and all of these updates and all that kind of stuff. Not all of that stuff goes out by MailChimp or other ways. And um, also all the kids' materials goes out through that as well. So if you're a parent and you need to get the kids' materials, Kim is sending that stuff weekly. Just go ahead and make sure you uh, contact us at the church, jordan at 68.org or info at 68.org and get your name and address and cell number in there and we'll we'll send you stuff along with everybody else. Uh, we have been in the book of John, and as I said last week, we want to stay with some normalcy. <laughs> you know, everything else is not normal right now, so we want to stay with some normalcy, right? And uh, so we're just going to keep going through our series, right? Uh, we could stop all that and, you know, create new things. I just don't want to do that. But let me pray us into this, because I think reading the Word of God is like an, a very, very important thing to us. We want to ask that the Spirit takes over here. So, Father God, we ask that your Spirit lights on all of our living rooms and homes and bedrooms, wherever we're sitting right now, that your Spirit would unfold and open your Word to us, that we would get it, that, we would, that it would stick to us, that it would, that it would, it would nourish our hearts, that it would bring uh, just joy to us, that it would bring conviction, joyous conviction where we need it, that it would turn us away from things that are harmful and damaging to us and bring us into your glory and your freedom and your love and your grace. Amen. Amen, Lord Jesus. That's what we want. So I pray blessings on everybody listening, myself included. I want some of that as well, Father. So we just, we pray all this in your holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, open up your Bibles if you have them. You don't have to open them, but if you have them, it's, it's a good practice. To chapter 8 of John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Um, it's uh, John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. All right? Now, full di- disclosure. I have to say this. Full disclosure. The earliest manuscripts and many of the other ancient witnesses uh don't have John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11, that, that little passage there that we're going to be looking at today. So, and some people think that it shouldn't be included in the biblical text. All, and although that might be true, um, no one seems to think it's a story which contradicts biblical teaching. And not to mention, it's just a really interesting story. So I, I'd like to address it today. And not to mention, I think we have to remember that John even says in chapter 21, verse 25, he says, Jesus did many other things as well, and if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty important. And I don't doubt that this is one of those stories. And although it may not have been in the earliest writings, I think it's a message that speaks to us, to us even during these times right now that we're going through. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, I'll read it to you. You can read along at home if you want. Uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. I'm going to get my phone. Just in case there's any problems, Jordan can call me. Uh, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him and sat down and and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, 
brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? All right, you can smell a trap here, right? And they said this to test him so that they, may, they, they might have some charge against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is the, oh, I, I love it. I love that. Just bends down, doesn't say anything, wrote, wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they kept, kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And see, it always starts with the older guys. When, we're, when we older guys know, right? And, and then it trickles down to the younger guys. Younger guys are always usually more arrogant, like they think they know more. But the older guys know when they're wrong, right? So the, the beginning with the elders, they, they start going away. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Wow, what a blessing that must have been to that woman, right? What a blessing it must have been to her. So Jesus is, the situation is that Jesus is up early, and he's returning from the Mount of Olives where he's spent the night, and he goes directly to the temple, and he sits with people, and he begins to teach, which Luke tells us in chapter 21 of his gospel, that that was Jesus' daily routine. Now imagine sitting in a circle at the feet of Jesus as he shares about the kingdom of God and life with you. That would be really cool. And then this group of scribes and Pharisees come along, they bring this woman that they they had caught in adultery, and I, and I do the, the quotation mark things there uh, for a reason, because this situation smells very contrived on their part. Early in the morning, it, you know, it reeks of prior planning, right? And they've missed out on all their other chances to arrest him and get rid of him, and he's like this thorn in their side. He's out there teaching those very same people that they themselves had called idiots back in chapter 7, if you remember that. And they don't want his influence over them, right? And they, they considered themselves, if you remember, to be the guardians of truth, and they've ceased to become followers of truth, right? So let's think about this. I, in my early Christian life, I was part of an organization which employed a certain leader who was a, a little bit different than the rest of the leaders in that, that, that organization. And th- there was nothing wrong with this guy at all. He was just a little bit different than the rest. There was, uh, you know, other, other leaders were, were um, you know, sort of the organized corporate types. Well, you know, but this guy never, ever donned a suit. He ne- his house was messy. Their house was clean, right? They held formal meetings, you know, with certain rules. And, you know, he addressed problems over a beer on, on his back porch with people, right? And his lackadaisical style and his seeming you know, disorganization just infuriated these other guys. But there was, he didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't in sin. He wasn't, there was nothing he was doing wrong. And one day I got a call from, from two of the other leaders asking me to confirm a few things that this man had said involving a certain situation. And I felt like it was an effort to entrap him in order to have a reason to fire him. 
and it seemed contrived, and the real problem wasn't him. He just didn't fit their mold. So instead of making room for different types of personalities, they just wanted to be rid of him. And I chose not to have any part of it. I just kind of said, nah, I don't want to do that, and uh, stepped back. And I believe the same thing is happening here. These scribes and Pharisees are looking for a way to trap Jesus using this woman. He doesn't fit their mold. They, they stood the woman before Jesus, announcing that you know, she had been caught you know, in adultery. And they added that the law stated that he, she be stoned. Now, you can find that in the Old Testament in a few places. And one of the reasons this seems a little bit contrived is that the law stated actually stated that both the offending man and the woman would face stoning. So where is the offending male, right? Where is that guy, (laughs) right? That's a little unfair. Now realize, though, I want you to realize this. This is a very important fact. This particular Levitical law had long since been laid aside for a number of reasons. It had long since been laid aside for a number of reasons. One reason may have been that it actually had its intended effect. That is that people, when they're faced with stoning another, that they are moved to compassion, they're moved to conviction, they're moved for forgiveness, and they're actually moved to personal repentance themselves. See, typically people don't really want to stone someplace, somebody else. You might have a crazy that you know, but usually people are pretty decent people. They don't want to stone somebody, especially when they know that they're not without guilt themselves, right? And in being presented with doing so, doing something like that, they are confronted with their own sin, which actually deserves the same. But there are two more likely reasons that this was not in practice anymore. Firstly, it had to do with Jesus' claims in other gospel records that this was an adulterous generation. We hear him say that in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8. And he didn't just say that you're an adulterous generation is sort of like this spiritual metaphor, although it was, but he actually, it was actually a fact of their present situation. It really was. Apparently, at that moment in history, the sin of adultery was so rampant that, <laughs> that everyone would deserve a good stoning, right? And that, that was, that's a sad fact. So it's an adulterous generation. That's hard to believe. But I was teaching English once to a group of healthcare workers in another country, and they were from another faith another faith tradition. They weren't Christians, and they were very fun-loving people. I really got along with them well. We joked a lot in class and stuff, and they were very surprisingly very open about their sexual exploits out in their community, right, or of their community, right? And you'd think that in this pious religious culture such as theirs that there would be nothing bad going on, right? But they proceeded to inform me that almost everyone they knew consistently had multiple affairs going on all the time, that they couldn't identify one married couple who had kept their marriage bed pure. Isn't that a shame? Now, it was really hard for me to believe. I, You know, you hear things like that, and you're like, ah, I can't be true, right? But I started to ask my Christian friends from that culture who confirmed it to be true, that among that particular population, that adultery was extremely common, very common, despite all the rules, despite all the regulations, and despite all the threats of punishment tied to their religious beliefs. Now, women 
who held that to their particular faith often expressed that they wanted to be married to a Christian husband since they noticed that Christian husbands treated their wives better usually and, and, and that adultery was almost non-existent among the Christian population. It happened, but it didn't happen as, as often, right? Which confirms for us a great verse, Colossians 2.23, which says this, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, right? This strong, like, you know, rules-based, you know, religiosity, right? Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't have, they can't control that. And we all know that, right? When somebody tells you not to do something, you want to go do that thing more than anything else, right? It, we all know that. Like rules really don't keep us from doing the right thing. Uh, you know, they, they actually push us oftentimes, uh, whatever it is in us, that sinful nature in us puts a, pushes us to do the wrong thing. The healthcare workers that I was teaching, they explained to me that in their faith tradition, that sin wasn't sin until they were caught in the act. So to them, it was a behavioral issue alone rather than a heart issue. And if the behavior wasn't exposed, then it just didn't exist. The sin just didn't exist. And the same had become true with Israel living under the heaviness of the Jewish hedge of law. So the message was, don't get caught. Right? Just don't get caught because rules have no power in restraining sen- uh, sensual indulgence or sinful desire. They just, they, they don't. But remember, they're talking to Jesus who had said, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery, you know, in your heart. That's making it a hard issue. You know, it's far, be- in, in Jesus' mind, it's far beyond, beyond uh, behavior. His standards are actually even much higher which is so hard to attain, right? Like, how did, like guys, how many times do you think of a girl that way? Or, you know, we can't reach that standard, right? You know, Jesus at this moment, he won't be drugged in, into their argument on their terms because on their terms, listen to this, he, if he said no, don't stone her, he'd be overriding the law of Moses and they would accuse him of not following God's perfect law. So they'd got, they'd have him, right? If he said, yes, stone her, he'd be stepping on the authority of Rome since they were the only authority that were allowed to hand down a death sentence. So these guys think they're pretty clever um, trapping Jesus into this uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. They think that they've got him by this. So our second more likely reason that stonings didn't occur at this time is because there's no way the Roman authorities would allow someone to be stoned for what they considered just absolutely normal behavior. You know, uh, adultery was very common. You know, they didn't take any issue with it. That's not a stoning offense. You know, and it just tells us that we've all been screwed up all the time, right? We've all been sort of deviant and sinful all throughout history. You know, it's not any worse now. The Internet hasn't made it worse. It's just to reveal the level of the depravity of our hearts. Hosea 4.14 talks about that, right? So Jesus could either 
break Mosaic law and be discredited before the people, or he could break Roman law, and then he could be held to that. But he doesn't react at first. He's, he's smart that way. And he, instead, he just kneels down and he starts to write something in the dirt. And we all, that's the question we're all going to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. What in the world did you write in the dirt, right? That's what I want to know. And he's, he doesn't answer. And we have to realize that his, that his answer that he gives could very well cost him his life or at least his freedom to continue to do ministry to people. But they're adamant, and they keep questioning, and he stands up and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at this lady, which apparently translated more carefully asks or says, if any of you are not guilty of a sin such as this, in other words, the same sin, go ahead, chuck the first stone. And then he kneels back down, and he continues to draw in the dirt, allowing them to chew on that, right? It was brilliant, right? I love the way he just turns the tables on people. Now, think about who you get mad at, just for a second, right? Think about who you get mad mad at. Uh, What really angers you about people, right? Was it a sibling who, you know, always got what they wanted while you, you, everything, you did everything right and you didn't get anything or a person who gets all the attention and you always feel sort of left out or the guy at work who doesn't have a filter on his mouth and he says whatever comes to his mind but never gets in trouble for it. You know, the selfish person who never gives back and is always taking and taking like you go out to dinner and they're like, Oh, I forgot my wallet again. You know, and you're like, yeah, sure you did. Right. Or just the person who always seems to have everything worked out and for them, you know, their life just comes together and all that stuff and your life just seems to fall apart or whatever. Or the person, you know, that just seems so gifted in so many ways and you're, you, you've been left with like nothing, right? Or the guy in college, these are people we hate, right? The guy in college who partied all the time, never studied an, a, a moment in his life, but he got all straight A's. Like, how do you do that, right? Oh, anyway, but... Isn't what makes us mad about others oftentimes the very same deficiency, either the very same deficiency we see in ourselves or who get the very thing that we desire but we don't have? Don't we often just want what they have or to be as free as they are? Don't we just want to see them punished, right? You see, this situation in John chapter 8, isn't a true confrontation of this woman. It's an effort to destroy Jesus, right? She's just a bait. They couldn't care less about her situation outside of using her to attack Jesus. That's it. They're jealous of his influence, his words, and his ability to gather all these people and to teach them well about forgiveness and the kingdom of God and love and all this kind of stuff, and they just want him gone. That's all they want. You remember the story of the prodigal son. The older brother in that story of the prodigal son didn't care about the younger brother, right? You know that. Just about what he just only cared about what he wasn't getting himself. He didn't care for the mercy and the grace that the father was showing to his younger brother. He he just, you know, he just wanted the attention and the things that he thought that he deserved. That's it. And these guys didn't care for the truth that Jesus brought to people, only that their personal glory was being eclipsed. That's all they cared about. 
basically saying you can't come out here every day and sit here and teach these uh, these ideas of the kingdom of God. This is our world. We control it. We hold power. You're robbing the attention that we deserve. That's what they're saying. And although we're going to find out that they had not done everything right, obviously, but they, they, they just kept up appearances. But what happens, right? Each one of them, starting with the oldest and going down to the youngest, walks away convicted. Jesus hit a nerve. He hit a nerve. And apparently, they were all either guilty of this sin or something very similar, because none of them can pick up a stone. And Jesus had turned the tables. Amen! My boy Jesus making it happen, right? And they, they had thr- if they had thrown the stone, everybody would have known that they weren't innocent and they'd lose influence over people. Or if they had thrown a stone, the Roman authorities would have held the, them to breaking the law and they would have lost influence, right? And Jesus bends down to right on the ground until they're all gone. And maybe he wrote, maybe the thing that he wrote was the, the names of all their mistresses. Who knows? I don't know. But until he's, he's left with just a woman, he's sitting there and, and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, nope, nobody. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go your own way. And from now on, do not sin again. Now, realize this. This is an important point. No one except Jesus, because Jesus was the only sinless human being that walked this earth. No one except Jesus. You have to be totally without sin to be able to judge somebody else. You know that, right? So no one except Jesus had any right to judge this woman. Nobody. He was the only one without sin, yet he judges with grace and mercy in hand, doesn't he? Realize that no one here in this situation is innocent. The woman wasn't innocent. He said, go and sin no more, right? She had sinned, and Jesus tells her not to do it again. None of the scribes and none of the Pharisees are innocent, and we know that because they walked away. That was their confession. You'd assume that we'd interpret this passage to be that we can't stand in the judgment of others. And that would be one message. Those, you know, with a plank in their own eye, you know, sitting in judgment of the one with a speck in her eye. And that would be a message. But the difficult problem with that is that we can't get the plank out of our own eye, can we? None of us can. Every time I point the finger at somebody, there's three fingers pointing back at my own heart. Even if, if I judge somebody, if I point the finger in, 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 of judgment at someone else, even if I am correct in my assessment of their behavior, I find myself like these men also accuse myself and I'm driven to my knees in submission to Jesus. See, judging others is a catch-22 for two reasons. Firstly, it puts us immediately in the seat of the accused. It puts us immediately in the seat of the accused. And secondly, if we judge others, who are we really judging? We're judging Jesus. We're judging God. These guys use this woman as a pawn And if Jesus wasn't there taking their glory away, preaching the kingdom, gathering and influencing people and all that stuff, they had never, they would never have contrived this, this plot. She simply does not matter to them. She doesn't. Their intention is to stand in judgment of Jesus and not her at all. They couldn't care less what she's done. 
See, we like to think as human beings in, in terms of fairness and logic. See somebody doing something wrong that we disagree with or actually something wrong. We say to ourselves, they deserve punishment. They can't get away with that. They have to understand what they did wrong. They have to pay restitution. They have to work themselves back into my good graces, right? We hold up the law over people. We operate on a scale of balances in relationship. We're always, you know, negotiating. We want religious rules to govern everybody else, but not ourselves. (laughs) right? But grace works against logic. It really does at some level. It works against logic, although it has its logic all its own. Jesus simply says, I don't condemn you. Go no more. I don't condemn you. Go no more. Amen. What really irks these guys is Jesus loves people. He's exemplifying the heart of God instead of a law of religiosity. He's not controlling, he is forgiving, and in essence, he's robbing their influence because people are attracted to grace. They're attracted to mercy. And when other people don't get what they think that they deserve, we might think we get angry at them, right? If somebody doesn't get that punishment that we want them to get, we we think that we get angry at that person. But who are we really angry with? You know, like, who do we really stand in judgment of? And I think it is God. I don't think it's that person. When you don't act the way that I think is acceptable, even though I might be right in my assessment of your behavior, and I see you experiencing a blessing from God like the prodigal son did, I get angry with God. I I become the older brother of the prodigal son, and I stand in judgment of my father. I'm the Pharisee standing in judgment of Jesus in this story. Remember, in John seven forty nine, chapter 7, verse 49, they considered these people out there that Jesus is influencing to be the idiotic, uneducated rabble. They said this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them, right? They don't care about those people. To the scribes and Pharisees, these people didn't deserve grace, let alone to be treated with dignity and love and forgiveness. They needed to be punished and they needed to be controlled. That's what they thought. And these leaders were guardians of truth, and they weren't followers of truth. But what's the difference? Now, if you downloaded the lyrics at the end of that document on our website, you would have seen this this, uh, chart. And on the left side, it says guardians of truth. On the right side, it says followers of truth. And let me just read a few of these things. A guardian of truth lacks intimacy with Jesus. A follower of of truth is growing in their intimacy with Jesus. Uh, A guardian of truth uh, is full of self-concern. They're governed by fear and anxiety. They always have to fix things. But... A follower of truth, a follower of Jesus, is freed from worry. They can let things go. They're lighter. Uh, Number three, a a guardian of truth is anxious about what others do and don't do. They're, They're too confrontative, and their confrontation ends up condemning a person. But a follower of truth, a follower of Jesus isn't fearful. They know God God will work things out. They trust in faith that God will work things out. They they confront only when they are led by the Spirit of God, and and their confrontation actually brings life. 
you know, I, I could read all of these. They're, they're, it's an exhaustive list. It's, it's fairly long, and I would urge you to look through it. We're going to talk through this in some of our community groups this week. But, you know, it's an exhaustive list. We don't have to read them all right now. But I want you to remember, as we just heard from that last point, that grace and mercy in, in, the, in the life of, of, of a Christian does not negate loving confrontation of another person when they are in sin. That's not what this story teaches us, that we just don't judge anybody, like we just don't talk about problems. That's not what it's saying. Loving confrontations, much different than self-righteous judgment. Judgment condemns, whereas loving confrontation comes from a stance of humility, of love, and of grace, and of our stance on the righteousness of Christ. It seeks to walk with a person into the freedom of Jesus, not to control them at all. It seeks to encourage them, to build them up. It is not punitive, right? It overlooks the small things. You know, we don't address every little thing, and it's done in in the right time with the right voice, with the right tone, and the right demeanor. All, like a mature Christian knows all things are, all those things are important. It builds people up. It looks to potential. It doesn't recount wrongs, but it moves a person forward in life and forward in faith and forward in emotion and, and all that kind of stuff. So the question is, do we exude grace? Do we see p- potential in people beyond just their faults? Have we put ourselves in Jesus' place as judge of others, meaning we become God's judge, right? (laughs) When Jesus judges a person or a situation with mercy and grace, do we grumble at God because he didn't punish them? Or are we happy about it? Are we overly concerned about fixing all the little problems instead of loving people closer to Jesus? You know, the guardian of truth, The Pharisee, the guardian of truth, ceases to be about Jesus. Although all the language, all their language is couched in this religious terminology. It all is the same sort of language, but it feels different. You sense it being different. It's about control. It's about being right all the time, which always leads to judgment of others and of God, which is never our place. Philip Yancey tells the story of a young woman who who he had... uh, spoken with supporting her while she was supporting her drug habit through prostitution. And he asked her, you know, have you ever thought about going to the church for help? And her response was the church. Why would I go there? I already feel badly about myself. They'd only make me feel worse. And it occurred to him that people like her in Jesus day flocked to Jesus. They ran to him. Well, why don't they flock to the church, which represents him now, right? Because in the church, the grace either resides and lives and starts here or it doesn't. We're either religion, you know, living a religiosity or we're actually living a true grace-filled, mercy-filled church life, right? To be fair, most people who say that, who have that criticism against the church, uh, don't really sometimes say it out of experience, but out of rumor, because I've experienced the church to be very grace-filled, very, very merciful, very, very fun, very lighthearted. I know you guys are good, 
you know, loving, non-judgmental people as mature Christians are. I know that. I've experienced that in our church, and I just love that that's growing. That's, that's something that's growing and it's not dying, right? But it does illustrate a point to us. How you and I treat each other in the church will, uh, you know, will translate on how we treat others outside the church or how others will view Jesus from outside the church. It's a shame that some of the negative bad behavior that has gone on in Christian circles, you know, which is very few and far between for the most part, has really tainted the name of Christ. You know, are we a social club? These are good questions to ask. Are we a social club with rules you have to measure up to in order to be a part of it? Instead, you know, instituting this hedge of law, this weighty, heavy law that Israel did, with, like Israel did, with, which was extra biblical, additional to the Bible, uh, a weight that no one can really bear. We've all felt that in different churches in our lives, right? If we've been church people. Or are we deeply aware, all, every single one of us, you know, we're like, you know, beggar, you know, beggars that found bread and trying to give it to everybody else, right? You know, are we deeply aware of our own brokenness as sinners? becoming ever increasingly humbly reliant on Jesus and the Holy Spirit and encouraging one another to deeply connect to him at greater levels all the time to experience more freedom in him. Well, I think that 6-8 is a community of grace. I think we are. We are a lighthearted, warm, wonderful community of grace. But we are uncompromising concerning sin. Why? Because it is so damaging to people. It robs them of life. It damages them. It hurts people and hurts other people around them. So we desire everybody to find freedom in Jesus, freedom in Christ. We don't value judgment. We don't break others down. We don't shame people or place more impossible standards on the shoulders of those who just simply need grace and mercy. We don't do that. So when we see the pride of religiosity in our church, we confront it lovingly as it should be. Likewise, when another, li- another person is living in damaging ways in the church, we confront that also lovingly. And we give the ro- room for the Spirit to work in those situations. You know, it's, you know, I would think that, gosh, if, you know, somebody in my church, or let, let's use me, I would think that if I was cheating on my wife, that Dave Christie would confront me in a loving, wonderful way, because ne- I'm doing something damaging to people, right? You know, realize every moment that we're all sinners saved by grace through faith alone, right? Ephesians chapter 2, all equally deserving of death. We've all done wrong. But Jesus paid the price for us all, and he forgave us too, right? So when, when our prodigal brother or sister comes home after destroying their own lives and their sin, right? We don't bark at the Father about what we're not getting or the attention being diverted from us or how they need to be punished so badly. We realize all that we have with the Father already. We're all already living in his house, and we emulate our Father's love by embracing our sibling and welcoming them home, you know, the best place for them to be and where they should have been from the very beginning. Amen? Amen. If you want to download the text copy of this sermon, you can do that on the website, and there's some study questions at the end. We would love for you guys to, um, you know, use that, use those study questions, think about this stuff a little bit. Uh, they are made for groups, and so you can download this sermon and the study questions and use it with your, 
community group if you'd like. Uh, if you're again, if you're not connected to a group, we'd love to see you guys get connected. Uh, we're going to end there today. We've decided to kind of do three songs and then do the sermon and end. God bless you guys. It is so good to to be with you like this. I know it's not perfect, and I just want to say, and I know somebody's going to get mad at me for this. We are we are trying to think about ways where we can actually get together. And I'm not saying that we're going to be dangerous or we're going to break rules and in, you know, governmental rules or, or, you know, whatever, but we're looking at one way possibly for Easter, maybe later on, depends if we can get it where we can do a drive in church and park far enough away from each other that the, and we are asking permission from the government for this and all that stuff. We're not sure if we can do it, so I'm not making any promises, but it is one way that we can see each other, yell out through the car windows and talk to each other a little bit, but we'll park you know, every other space so that we're well over six feet away from each other and things like that. I, I just wanted to bring it up because I would love to hear your feedback chat right now. If you'd like to see that happen, uh, you know, we'll, it'll probably spur us to work harder at it. If it's not really a, a felt need with people that you really you're like, no, I'm I'm good with just the online Zoom thing. That's fine. We, we don't have to put the effort into uh, doing the drive-in church. But think about it. If you want to have like Easter Sunday or a Sunday following that, just one day where we can gather in a giant parking lot and just have church, I would be out front speaking, and somebody else, uh, maybe Vinny, would be on a guitar singing or whatever. Uh, let us know. Is that a desire of yours or not? God bless you guys. And uh, you know what, Jordan, let's leave this live for a few minutes so that people can chat. And then um, we'll, uh, we'll close it out in maybe five minutes. So I'm going to tune off. But uh, God bless you guys. Let me pray, pray us out of this. Father, we thank you. I love you so much. I love your word. I love your thoughts. I love everything that you bring to us. Uh, you know, we think about like the history of Israel, the history of the church, and how sometimes we don't follow along with what you've asked us to follow. We don't walk lockstep with your heart, and we want to do that better. We want to continually grow deeper in that so that you can be glorified among the nations of people around us and that more and more people can find the freedom of Christ in their life, the the wonderful, heartwarming uh, experience of grace and mercy in their hearts, and the, sort of the non-judgmental, non-condemning, you know, uh, presence of you. Are we, you know, I can't say God bless you because you're God, but if I could say that, I would say it. We love you so much, and we love this church, and we're asking right now that you would just spread our, that message of the gospel that eradicates fear and eradicates anxiety. Uh, to more and more people through this Zoom um, webinar thing. God bless, God bless all of you guys. Amen, Lord Jesus. Thank you uh, for what you bring to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to keep talking, and I'm, I'm going to shut up. <laughs>